Aerosmith by Sinclair Lewis, Chapter 5 Though bacteriology was all of Martin's life now, it was the theory of the university that he was also studying pathology, hygiene, surgical anatomy, and enough other subjects to swamp a genius. Cliff Clausen and he lived in a large room with flowered wallpaper, piles of filthy clothes, iron beds, and cuspidors. They made their own breakfasts. They dined on hash at the Pilgrim Lunch Wagon or the Dewdrop Inn. Cliff was occasionally irritating. He hated open windows. He talked of dirty socks. He sang, Some Die of Diabetes, when Martin was studying and he was altogether unable to say anything directly. He had to be humorous. He remarked, Is it your combobulatory concept that we might now feed the old faces? Or, how about ingurgitating a few calories? But he had for Martin a charm that could not be accounted for, by cheerfulness, his shrewdness, his vague courage. The whole of Cliff was more than the sum of his various parts. In the joy of his laboratory work, Martin thought rarely of his recent associates in Di Gamma Pi. He occasionally protested that the Reverend Ira Hinckley was a village policeman, and Irving Waters a plumber, that Angus Dewar would walk to success over his grandmother's head, and that for an idiot like Fatty Faff to practice on helpless human beings was criminal. But mostly he ignored them and ceased to be a pest and when he had passed his first triumphs in bacteriology and discovered how remarkably much he did not know, he was curiously humble. If he was less annoying in regard to his classmates, he was more so in his classrooms. He had learned from Gottlieb the trick of using the word control in reference to the person or animal or chemical left untreated during an experiment, as a standard for comparison and there is no trick more infuriating. When a physician boasted of his success with this drug or that electric cabinet, Gottlieb always snorted, Where was your control? How many cases did you have under identical conditions, and how many of them did not get the treatment? Now Martin began to mouth it. Control, control, control. Where's your control? Where's your control? till most of his fellows and a few of his instructors desired to lynch him. He was particularly tedious in Materia Medica. The professor of Materia Medica, Dr. Lloyd Davidson, would have been an illustrious shopkeeper. He was very popular. From him a future physician could learn that most important of all things, the proper drugs to give a patient, particularly when you cannot discover what is the matter with him. His classes listened with zeal and memorized the sacred hundred and fifty favorite prescriptions. He was proud that this was fifty more than his predecessor had required. But Martin was rebellious. He inquired, and publicly, Dr. Davidson, how do they know ichthyol is good for erysipelas? Isn't it just rotten fossil fish? Isn't it like the mummy dust and puppy ear stuff they used to give in the olden days? How do they know? Why, my critical young friend, because thousands of physicians have used it for years and found their patients getting better, and that's how they know. But honest, doctor, wouldn't the patients maybe have gotten better anyway? 
Wasn't it maybe a post-hoc propter hoc? Have they ever experimented on a whole slew of patients together with controls? Probably not. And until some genius like yourself, Aerosmith, can herd together a few hundred people with exactly identical cases of erysipelas, it probably never will be tried. Meanwhile, I trust that you other gentlemen, who perhaps lack Mr. Aerosmith's profound scientific attainments and the power to use such handy technical terms as control, will merely, on my feeble advice, continue to use ichthyol. But Martin insisted. Please, Dr. Davidson, what's the use of getting all these prescriptions by heart anyway? We'll forget most of them, and besides, we can always look them up in the book. Davidson pressed his lips together. Then, Aerosmith, with a man of your age, I hate to answer you as I would a three-year-old boy, but apparently I must. Therefore, you will learn the properties of drugs and the contents of prescriptions because I tell you to. If I did not hesitate to waste time of the other members of this class, I would try to convince you that my statements may be accepted, not on my humble authority, but because they are the conclusions of wise men, men wiser, or certainly a little older than you, my friend, through many ages. But as I have no desire to indulge in fancy flights of rhetoric and eloquence, I shall merely say that you will accept, and you will study, and you will memorize, because I tell you to. Martin considered dropping his medical course and specializing in bacteriology. He tried to confide in Cliff, but Cliff had become impatient of his fretting, and he turned again to the energetic and willowy Madeline Fox. Part 2 Madeline was at once sympathetic and sensible. Why not complete his medical course, then see what he wanted to do? They tramped, they skated, they skied, they went to the University Dramatic Society play. Madeline's widowed mother had come to live with her, and they had taken a top-floor flat in one of the tiny apartment houses which were beginning to replace the expansive old wooden houses of Mohalis. The flat was full of literature and decoration a bronze Buddha from Chicago, a rubbing of Shakespeare's epitaph, a set of Anatole France in translation, a photograph of Cologne Cathedral, a wicker tea table with a samovar whose operation no one in the university understood, and a souvenir postcard album. Madeline's mother was a Main Street Dowager Duchess. She was stately and white-haired, but she attended the Methodist Church. In Mohalis, she was flustered by the chatter of the students. She longed for her hometown, for the church sociables and the meetings of the women's club. They were studying education this year, and she hated to lose all the information about university ways. With a home and a chaperone, Madeline began to entertain. Eight o'clock parties with coffee, chocolate cake, chicken salad, and word games. She invited Martin but he was jealous of his evenings, beautiful evenings of research. The first affair to which she enticed him was her big New Year's party in January. They did advertisements, guessed at tableaus representing advertising pictures. They danced to the phonograph, 
and they had not merely a lap supper, but little tables excessively covered with doilies. Martin was unaccustomed to such elegance. Though he had come in sulky unwillingness, he was impressed by the supper, by the frocks of the young women. He realized that his dancing was rusty, and he envied the senior who could do the new waltz called the Boston. There was no strength, no grace, no knowledge that Martin Arrowsmith did not covet, when consciousness of it had pierced through the layers of his absorption. If he was but little greedy for possessions, he was hungry for every skill. His reluctant wonder at the others was drowned in his admiration for Madeline. He had known her as a jacketed outdoor girl, but this was an exquisite indoor Madeline, slender in yellow silk. She seemed to him a miracle of tact and ease as she bullied her guests into an appearance of merriment. She had need of tact, for Dr. Norman Brumfit was there, and it was one of Dr. Brumfit's evenings to be original and naughty. He pretended to kiss Madeline's mother, which vastly discomforted the poor lady. He sang a strongly improper Negro song containing the word hell. He maintained to a group of women graduate students that George Sand's affairs might perhaps be partially justified by their influence on men of talent. And when they looked shocked, he pranced a little, and his eyeglasses glittered. Madeline took charge of him. She trilled, Dr. Brumfit, you're terribly learned and so on and so forth, and sometimes in English classes I'm simply scared to death of you but other times you're nothing but a bad small boy, and I won't have you teasing the girls. You can help me bring in the sherbet. That's what you can do. Martin adored her. He hated Brumfit for the privilege of disappearing with her into the closet-like kitchen of the flat. Madeline. She was the one person who understood him. Here, where everyone snatched at her, and Dr. Brumfit beamed on her with almost matrimonial fondness, she was precious. She was something he must have. On pretense of helping her set the tables, he had a moment with her, and whimpered, "'Lord, you're so lovely.' "'I'm glad you think I'm a wee bit nice.' She, the rose and the adored of all the world, gave him her favor. "'Can I come call on you tomorrow evening?' "'Well, I... perhaps.' Part 3. It cannot be said, in this biography of a young man who was in no degree a hero, who regarded himself as a seeker after truth, yet who stumbled and slid back all his life and bogged himself in every obvious morass, that Martin's intentions toward Madeline Fox were what is called honorable. He was not a Don Juan but he was a poor medical student who would have to wait for years before he could make a living. Certainly, he did not think of proposing marriage. He wanted, like most poor and ardent young men in such a case, he wanted all he could get. As he raced toward her flat, he was expectant of adventure. He pictured her melting. He felt her hand glide down his cheek. He warned himself, don't be a fool now. Probably nothing doing at all. Don't go get all worked up and then be disappointed. She'll probably cuss you out for something you did wrong at the party. 
she'll probably be sleepy and wish you hadn't come. Nothing. But he did not for a second believe it. He rang. He saw her opening the door. He followed her down the meager hall, longing to take her hand. He came into the overbright living room, and he found her mother, solid as a pyramid, permanent-looking as sunless winter. But of course mother would obligingly go and leave him to conquest. Mother did not. In Mohalis, the suitable time for young men callers to depart is ten o'clock. But from eight till a quarter after eleven, Martin did battle with Mrs. Fox. Talked to her in two languages, an audible gossip and a mute but furious protest, while Madeline, she was present. She sat about and looked pretty. In an equally silent tongue, Mrs. Fox answered him, till the room was thick with their antagonism, while they seemed to be discussing the weather, the university, and the trolley service into Zenith. "'Yes, of course, some day I guess they'll have a car every twenty minutes,' he said weightily. "'Darn her! Why doesn't she go to bed?' "'Cheers! She's doing up her knitting!' "'Nope. Damn it! She's taking another ball of wool.' "'Oh, yes, I'm sure they'll have to have better service,' said Mrs. Fox. "'Young man, I don't know much about you, "'but I don't believe you're the right kind of person for Madeline to go with. "'Anyway, it's time you went home.' "'Oh, yes, sure, you bet. Lot better service. "'I know I'm staying too long, and I know you know it, but I don't care.' It seemed impossible that Mrs. Fox should endure his stolid persistence. He used thought-forms, will-power, and hypnotism, and when he rose, defeated, she was still there, extremely placid. They said good-bye not too warmly. Madeline took him to the door. For an exhilarating half-minute, he had her alone. "'I wanted so much. I wanted to talk to you.' "'I know. I'm sorry. Sometime,' she muttered. He kissed her. It was a tempestuous kiss, and very sweet. Part 4 Fudge parties, skating parties, sleighing parties, a literary party with the guest of honor, a lady journalist who did the social page for the Zenith Advocate Times— Madeline leaped into an orgy of jocund but extraordinarily tiring entertainments, and Martin obediently and smolderingly followed her. She appeared to have trouble in getting enough men, and to the literary evening Martin dragged the enraged Cliff Clausen. Cliff grumbled, "'This is the damnedest zoo of sparrows I ever did time in.' But he bore off treasure." He had heard Madeline call Martin by her favorite name of Martykins. That was very valuable. Cliff called him Martykins. Cliff told others to call him Martykins. Fatty Faff and Irving Waters called him Martykins. And when Martin wanted to go to sleep, Cliff croaked, Yep, you'll probably marry her. She's a dead shot. She can hit a smart young M.D. at ninety paces. Oh, you'll have one fine young time going on with science after that skirt sets you at tonsil snatching. 
She's one of these literary birds. She knows all about literature, except maybe how to read. She's not so bad-looking now. She'll get fat, like her ma. Martin said that which was necessary, and he concluded, She's the only girl in the graduate school that's got any pep. The others just sit around and talk, and she gets up the best parties. Any kissing parties? Now you look here. I'll be getting sore, first thing you know. You and I are roughnecks, but Madeline Fox, she's like Angus Dewar some ways. I realize all the stuff we're missing. Music and literature, yes, and decent clothes, too. No harm to dressing well. That's just what I was telling you. She'll have you all doled up in a Prince Albert and a boiled shirt, diagnosing everything as rich widowitis. How you can fall for that four-flushing dame. Where's your control? Cliff's opposition stirred him to consider Madeline not merely with a sly and avaricious interest, but with a dramatic conviction that he longed to marry her. Part 5 Few women can for long periods keep from trying to improve their men. And to improve means to change a person from what he is, whatever that may be, into something else. Girls like Madeline Fox, artistic young women who do not work at it, cannot be restrained from improving for more than a day at a time. The moment the urgent Martin showed that he was stirred by her graces, she went at his clothes his corduroys and soft collars and eccentric old gray felt hat, at his vocabulary and his taste in fiction with new and more patronizing vigor. Her sketchy way of saying, why, of course everybody knows that Emerson was the greatest thinker, irritated him the more in contrast to Gottlieb's dark patience. Oh, let me alone, he hurled at her. You're the nicest thing the Lord ever made when you stick to things you know about. But when you spring your ideas on politics and chemotherapy, darn it, quit bullying me. I guess you're right about slang. I'll cut out all this junk about feeding your face and so on. But I will not put on a hard-boiled collar. I won't. He might never have proposed to her, but for the spring evening on the roof. She used the flat roof of her apartment house as a garden. She had set out one box of geraniums and a cast-iron bench, like those once beheld in cemetery plots. She had hung up two Japanese lanterns. They were ragged, and they hung crooked. She spoke with scorn of the other inhabitants of the apartment house, who were so prosaic, so conventional, that they never came up to this darling Heidi place. She compared her refuge to the roof of a Moorish palace, to a Spanish patio, to a Japanese garden, to a plaisance of old Provençal. But to Martin it seemed a good deal like a plain roof. He was vaguely ready for a quarrel that April evening when he called on Madeline, and her mother sniffily told him that she was to be found on the roof. Damned Japanese lanterns! Rather look at liver sections, he grumbled, as he trudged up the curving stairs. Madeline was sitting on the funereal iron bench, her chin in her hands. For once she did not greet him with flowery excitement, but with a noncommittal, Hello. 
She seemed spiritless. He felt guilty for his scoffing. He suddenly saw the pathos in her pretense that this stretch of tar paper and slatted walks was a blazing garden. As he sat beside her, he piped, "'Say, that's a dandy new strip of matting you put down.' "'It is not. It's mangy,' she turned toward him. She wailed. "'Oh, Mart, I'm so sick of myself tonight. I'm always trying to make people think I'm somebody. I'm not. I'm a bluff.' "'What is it, dear?' "'Oh, it's lots. Dr. Brumfit, hang him.' only he was right. He as good as told me that if I don't work harder, I'll have to get out of the graduate school. I'm not doing a thing, he said, and if I don't have my Ph.D., then I won't be able to land a nice job teaching English in some swell school, and I'd better land one, too, because it doesn't look to poor Madeline as if anybody was going to marry her. His arm about her, he blared, I know exactly who— no, I'm not fishing. I'm almost honest tonight. I'm no good, Mart. I tell people how clever I am, and I don't suppose they believe it. Probably they go off and laugh at me. They do not. If they did, I'd like to see anybody that tried laughing. It's awfully sweet and dear of you, but I'm not worth it. The poetic Madeline, with her refined vocabulary. I'm a I'm a... Martin, I'm a tin-horn sport. I'm everything your friend Cliff thinks I am. Oh, you needn't tell me. I know what he thinks. And I'll have to go home with Mother, and I can't stand it, dear. I can't stand it. I won't go back. That town. Never anything doing. The old tabbies and the beastly old men, always telling the same old jokes. I won't. Her head was in the hollow of his arm. She was weeping, hard. He was stroking her hair, not covetously now, but tenderly, and he was whispering, "'Darling, I almost feel as if I dared to love you. You're going to marry me, and take me a couple more years to finish my medical course and couple in hospital, then we'll be married, and—' By thunder, with you helping me, I'm going to climb to the top. Be a big surgeon. We're going to have everything. Dearest, do be wise. I don't want to keep you from your scientific work. Oh, well, well, I would like to keep up some research. But thunder, I'm not just a lab cat. Battle a life, smashing your way through. Competing with real men in real struggle. If I can't do that and do some scientific work, too, I'm no good. Course, while I'm with Gottlieb, I want to take advantage of it. But afterwards, oh, Madeline. Then was all reasoning lost in a blur of nearness to her. Part 6 He dreaded the interview with Mrs. Fox. He was certain that she would demand... "'Young man, how do you expect to support my Maddie? "'And you use bad language.' "'But she took his hand and mourned, "'I hope you and my baby will be happy. "'She's a dear, good girl, "'even if she is a little flighty sometimes, "'and I know you're nice and kind and hard-working. 
I shall pray you'll be happy. Oh, I'll pray so hard. You young people don't seem to think much of prayer, but if you knew how it helped me. Oh, I'll petition for your sweet happiness. She was weeping. She kissed Martin's forehead with the dry, soft, gentle kiss of an old woman, and he was near to weeping with her. At parting, Madeline whispered, "'Boy, I don't care a bit myself, but Mother would love it if we went to church with her. Don't you think you could, just once?' The astounded world, the astounded and profane Cliff Clausen, had the spectacle of Martin in shiny pressed clothes, a painful linen collar, and an arduously tied scarf, accompanying Mrs. Fox and the chastely chattering Madeline to the Mohallis Methodist Church, to hear the Reverend Dr. Myron Schwab discourse on the one way to righteousness. They passed the Reverend Ira Hinckley, and Ira gloated with a holy gloating at Martin's captivity. Part 7 For all his devotion to Max Gottlieb's pessimistic view of the human intellect, Martin had believed that there was such a thing as progress, that events meant something, that people could learn something, that if Madeline had once admitted she was an ordinary young woman who occasionally failed, then she was saved. He was bewildered when she began improving him more airily than ever. She complained of his vulgarity and what she asserted to be his slack ambition. "'You think it's terribly smart of you to feel superior. Sometimes I wonder if it isn't just laziness. You like to daydream around labs. Why should you be spared the work of memorizing your materia medica and so on and so forth? All the others have to do it. No, I won't kiss you. I want you to grow up and listen to reason.' In fury at her badgering, in desire for her lips and forgiving smile, he was whirled through to the end of the term. A week before examinations, when he was trying to spend twenty-four hours a day in making love to her, twenty-four in grinding for examinations, and twenty-four in the bacteriological laboratory, he promised Cliff that he would spend that summer vacation with him, working as a waiter in a Canadian hotel. He met Madeline in the evening, and with her walked through the cherry orchard on the Agricultural Experiment Station grounds. "'You know what I think of your horrid Cliff Clausen,' she complained. "'I don't suppose you care to hear my opinion of him.' "'I've had your opinion, my beloved,' Martin sounded mature, and not too pleasant. "'Well, I can tell you right now you haven't had my opinion of your being a waiter.' For the life of me, I can't understand why you don't get some gentlemanly job for vacation, instead of hustling dirty dishes. Why couldn't you work on a newspaper, where you'd have to dress decently and meet nice people? Sure, I might edit the paper, but since you say so, I won't work at all this summer. Fool thing to do anyway. I'll go to Newport and play golf and wear a dress suit every night. It wouldn't hurt you any. I do respect honest labor. It's like Burns says. But waiting on table. Oh, Mart, why are you so proud of being a roughneck? Do stop being smart for a minute. Listen to the night and smell the cherry blossoms. Or maybe a great scientist like you, that's so superior to ordinary people, is too good for cherry blossoms. 
Well, except for the fact that every cherry blossom has been gone for weeks now, you're dead right. Oh, they have, have they? They may be faded, but... Will you be so good as to tell me what that pale white mass is up there? I will. It looks to me like a hired man's shirt. Martin Arrowsmith, if you think for one moment that I'm ever going to marry a vulgar, crude, selfish, microbe-grubbing smart Alec, and if you think I'm going to marry a dame that keeps nag-nag-nagging and jab-jab-jabbing at me all day long, they heard each other. They had pleasure in it, and they parted forever. Twice they parted forever. The second time, very rudely, near a fraternity house, where students were singing heartbreaking summer songs to a banjo. In ten days, without seeing her again, he was off with Cliff to the North Woods, and in his sorrow of losing her, his longing for her soft flesh and her willingness to listen to him, he was only a little excited that he should have led the class in bacteriology, and that Max Gottlieb should have appointed him undergraduate assistant for the coming year. Chapter 6 The waiters at Nokomis Lodge, among the Ontario Pines, were all of them university students. They were not supposed to appear at the lodge dances. They merely appeared and took the prettiest girls away from the elderly and denunciatory suitors in white flannels. They had to work but seven hours a day. The rest of the time they fished, swam, and tramped the shadowy trails, and Martin came back to Mohalis placid and enormously in love with Madeline. They had written to each other, politely, regretfully, and once a fortnight, then passionately and daily. For the summer she had been dragged to her hometown, near the Ohio border of Winnemac, a town larger than Martin's Elk Mills, but more sun-baked, more barren, with little factories. She sighed, in a huge, loose script dashing all over the page. Perhaps we shall never see each other again, but I do want you to know how much I prize all the talks we had together about science and ideals and education, etc. I certainly appreciate them here when I listen to these stick-in-the-muds going on, oh, it is too dreadful, about their automobiles and how much they have to pay their maids and so on and so forth. You gave me so much, but I did give you something, didn't I? I can't always be in the wrong, can I? My dear, my little girl, he lamented, can't always be in the wrong, you poor kid, you poor dear kid. By midsummer they were firmly re-engaged, and, though he was slightly disturbed by the cashier, a young and giggling Wisconsin schoolteacher with ankles, he so longed for Madeline that he lay awake thinking of giving up his job and fleeing to her caresses. Lay awake for minutes at a time. The returning train was torturingly slow, and he dismounted at Mohalis, fevered with visions of her. Twenty minutes after, they were clinging together in the quiet of her living room. It is true that twenty minutes after that, she was sneering at Cliff Clausen, at fishing, and at all school teachers. But to his fury, 
she yielded in tears. Part 2 His junior year was a whirlwind. To attend lectures on physical diagnosis, surgery, neurology, obstetrics, and gynecology in the morning, with hospital demonstrations in the afternoon. To supervise the making of media and the sterilization of glassware for Gottlieb to instruct a new class in the use of the microscope and filter and autoclave, to read a page now and then of scientific German or French, to see Madeline constantly. To get through it all, he drove himself to hysterical hurrying, and in the dizziest of it, he began his first original research, his first lyric, his first ascent of unexplored mountains. He had immunized rabbits to typhoid, and he believed that if he mixed serum taken from these immune animals with typhoid germs, the germs would die. Unfortunately, he felt, the germs grew joyfully. He was troubled. He was sure that his technique had been clumsy. He performed his experiment over and over, working till midnight, waking at dawn to ponder on his notes. Though in letters to Madeline his writing was an inconsistent scrawl, in his laboratory notes it was precise. When he was quite sure that nature was persisting in doing something she ought not to, he went guiltily to Gottlieb, protesting, "'The darn bugs ought to die in this immune serum, but they don't. There's something wrong with the theories.' "'Young man, do you set yourself up against science?' grated Gottlieb flapping the papers on his desk. Do you feel competent, huh, to attack the dogmas of immunology? I'm sorry, sir. I can't help what the dogma is. Here's my protocols. Honestly, I've gone over and over the stuff, and I get the same results as you can see. I only know what I observe. Gottlieb beamed. I give you, my boy, my Episcopal blessings. That is the way. Observe what you observe, and if it does violence to all the nice, correct views of science, out they go. I am very pleased, Martin. But now find out the why, the underneath principle. Ordinarily, Gottlieb called him Aerosmith, or you, or uh. When he was furious, he called him, or any other student, doctor. It was only in high moments that he honored him with Martin, and the boy trotted off blissfully to try to find, but never to succeed in finding, the why that made everything so. Part 3 Gottlieb had sent him into Zenith, to the huge Zenith General Hospital, to secure a strain of meningococcus from an interesting patient. The board reception clerk, who was interested only in obtaining the names, business addresses, and religions of patients, and did not care who died or who spat on the beautiful blue and white linoleum, or who went about collecting meningococci, so long as the addresses were properly entered, loftily told him to go up to Ward D. Through the long hallways, past numberless rooms from which peered yellow-faced old women sitting up in bed in linty nightgowns, Martin wandered, trying to look important, hoping to be taken for a doctor, 
and succeeding only in feeling extraordinarily embarrassed. He passed several nurses rapidly, half nodding to them, in the manner, or what he conceived to be the manner, of a brilliant young surgeon who is about to operate. He was so absorbed in looking like a brilliant young surgeon that he was completely lost, and discovered himself in a wing filled with private suites. He was late. He had no more time to go on being impressive. Like all males, he hated to confess ignorance by asking directions. But grudgingly, he stopped at the door of a bedroom in which a probationer nurse was scrubbing the floor. She was a smallish and slender probationer, muffled in a harsh blue denim dress, an enormous white apron, and a turban bound about her head with an elastic, a uniform as grubby as her pail of scrub water. She peered up with the alert impudence of a squirrel. Nurse, he said, I want to find Ward D. Lazily. Do you? I do. If I can interrupt your work— doesn't matter. The damn superintendent of nurses put me at scrubbing, and we aren't ever supposed to scrub floors, because she caught me smoking a cigarette. She's an old terror. If she found a child like you wandering around here, she'd drag you out by the ear. My dear young woman, it may interest you to know. Oh, my dear young woman, it may. Sounds exactly like our old prof back home. Her indolent amusement, her manner of treating him as though they were a pair of children making tongues at each other in a railroad station, was infuriating to the earnest young assistant of Professor Gottlieb. "'I am Dr. Aerosmith,' he snorted, "'and I've been informed that even probationers learn that the first duty of a nurse is to stand when addressing doctors. I wish to find Ward D, to take a strain of, it may interest you to know, a very dangerous microbe, and if you will kindly direct me. Oh, gee, I've been getting fresh again. I don't seem to get along with this military discipline. All right, I'll stand up. She did. Her every movement was swiftly smooth as the running of a cat. You go back, turn right, then left. I'm sorry I was fresh but if you saw some of the old muffs of doctors that a nurse has to be meek to. Honestly, doctor. If you are a doctor. I don't see that I need to convince you, he raged, as he stalked off. All the way toward D, he was furious at her veiled derision. He was an eminent scientist, and it was outrageous that he should have to endure impudence from a probationer, a singularly vulgar probationer, a thin and slangy young woman, apparently from the West. He repeated his rebuke. I don't see that I need to convince you. He was proud of himself for having been lofty. He pictured himself telling Madeline about it, concluding, I just said to her quietly, My dear young woman, I don't know that you are the person to whom I have to explain my mission here. I said, and she wilted. But her image had not wilted when he had found the intern who was to help him and had taken the spinal fluid. She was before him, provocative, enduring. He had to see her again and convince her. Take a better man than she is, 
better man than I've ever met to get away with being insulting to me, said the modest young scientist. He had raced back to her room, and they were staring at each other before it came to him that he had not worked out the crushing things he was going to say. She had risen from her scrubbing. She had taken off her turban, and her hair was silky and honey-colored. Her eyes were blue, her face childish. There was nothing of the slavey in her. He could imagine her running down hillsides, shinning up a sack of straw. Oh, she said gravely, I didn't mean to be rude then. I was just... Scrubbing makes me bad-tempered. I thought you were awfully nice, and I'm sorry I hurt your feelings. But you did seem so young for a doctor. I'm not. I'm a medic. I was showing off. So was I. He felt an instant and complete comradeship with her a relation free from the fencing and posing of his struggle with Madeline. He knew that this girl was of his own people. If she was vulgar, jocular, unreticent, she was also gallant. She was full of laughter at humbugs. She was capable of a loyalty too casual and natural to seem heroic. His voice was lively, though his words were only Pretty hard, this training for nursing, I guess. Not so awful, but it's just as romantic as being a hired girl. That's what we call them in Dakota. Come from Dakota? I come from the most enterprising town, 362 inhabitants, in the entire state of North Dakota, Wheatsylvania. Are you in the U Medic School? To a passing nurse, the two youngsters would have seemed absorbed in hospital business. Martin stood at the door, she by her scrubbing pail. She had reassumed her turban. Its bagginess obscured her bright hair. Yes, I'm a junior medic in Mohalis, but, I don't know, I'm not much of a medic. I like the lab side. I think I'll be a bacteriologist and raise Cain with some of the fool theories of immunology and I don't think much of the bedside manner. I'm glad you don't. You get it here. You ought to hear some of the docs that are the sweetest old pussies with their patients, the way they bawl out the nurses. But labs, they seem sort of real. I don't suppose you can bluff a bacteria. What is it? Bacterium? No, they're... What do they call you? Me? Oh, it's an idiotic name. Leora Tozer. What's the matter with Leora? It's fine. Sound of mating birds. Sound of spring blossoms dropping in the tranquil air. The bark of sleepy dogs at midnight. Who is to set them down and make them anything but hackneyed? And as natural, as conventional, as youthfully gauche, as eternally beautiful and authentic as those ancient sounds, was the talk of Martin and Leora in that passionate half-hour when each found in the other a part of his own self, always vaguely missed, discovered now with astonished joy. They rattled like hero and heroine of a sticky tale, like sweatshop operatives, like bouncing rustics, like prince and princess. Their words were silly and inconsequential, heard one by one. 
yet taken together they were as wise and important as the tides or the sounding wind. He told her that he admired Max Gottlieb, that he had crossed her North Dakota on a train, and that he was an excellent hockey player. She told him that she adored vaudeville, that her father, Andrew Jackson Tozer, was born in the East, by which she meant Illinois, and that she didn't particularly care for nursing. She had no especial personal ambition. She had come here because she liked adventure. She hinted, with debonair regret, that she was not too popular with the superintendent of nurses. She meant to be good, but somehow she was always dragged into rebellions connected with midnight fudge or elopements. There was nothing heroic in her story, but from her placid way of telling it he had an impression of gay courage. He interrupted with an urgent, "'When can you get away from the hospital for dinner? Tonight. Why, please. All right. When can I call for you? Do you think I ought to—well, seven. All the way back to Mohalis, he alternately raged and rejoiced. He informed himself that he was a moron to make this long trip into Zenith twice in one day. He remembered that he was engaged to a girl called Madeline Fox. He worried the matter of unfaithfulness. He asserted that Leora Tozer was merely an imitation nurse, who was as illiterate as a kitchen wench and as impertinent as a newsboy. He decided, several times he decided, to telephone her and free himself from the engagement. He was at the hospital at a quarter to seven. He had to wait for twenty minutes in a reception room like that of an undertaker. He was in a panic. What was he doing here? She'd probably be agonizingly dull through a whole long dinner. Would he even recognize her in Mufti? Then he leaped up. She was at the door. Her sulky blue uniform was gone. She was childishly slim and light in a princess frock that was a straight line from high collar and soft young breast to her feet. It seemed natural to tuck her hand under his arm as they left the hospital. She moved beside him with a little dancing step, shyer now than she had been in the dignity of her job, but looking up at him with confidence. "'Glad I came,' he demanded." She thought it over. She had a trick of gravely thinking over obvious questions. And gravely, but with the gravity of a child, not the ponderous gravity of a politician or an office manager, she admitted, Yes, I'm glad. I was afraid you'd go and get sore at me because I was so fresh, and I wanted to apologize, and I liked your being so crazy about your bacteriology. I think I'm a little crazy, too. The interns here, they come bothering around a lot, but they're so sort of, so sort of soggy, with their new stethoscopes and their brand new dignity. Oh, most gravely of all. Oh, gee, yes, I'm glad you came. Am I an idiot to admit it? You're a darling to admit it. He was a little dizzy with her. He pressed her hand with his arm. You won't think I let every medic and doctor pick me up, will you? 
Leora, and you don't think I try and pick up every pretty girl I meet. I liked, I felt somehow we two could be chums. Can't we? Can't we? I don't know. We'll see. Where are we going for dinner? The Grand Hotel. We are not. It's terribly expensive, unless you're awfully rich. You aren't, are you? No, I'm not. Just enough money to get through medic school. But I want... Let's go to the Bijou. It's a nice place, and it isn't expensive. He remembered how often Madeline Fox had hinted that it would be a tasty thing to go to the Grand, Zenith's most resplendent hotel. But that was the last time he thought of Madeline that evening. He was absorbed in Leora. He found in her a casualness, a lack of prejudice, a directness, surprising in the daughter of Andrew Jackson Tozer. She was feminine but undemanding. She was never improving and rarely shocked. She was neither flirtatious nor cold. She was indeed the first girl to whom he had ever talked without self-consciousness. It is doubtful if Leora herself had a chance to say anything, for he poured out his every confidence as a disciple of Gottlieb. To Madeline, Gottlieb was a wicked old man who made fun of the sanctities of marriage and Easter lilies. To Cliff, he was a bore. But Leora glowed as Martin banged the table and quoted his idol. Up to the present, even in the work of Ehrlich, most research has been largely a matter of trial and error, the empirical method, which is the opposite of the scientific method, by which one seeks to establish a general law governing a group of phenomena so that he may predict what will happen. He intoned it reverently, staring across the table at her, almost glaring at her. He insisted, do you see where he leaves all these detail-grubbing, machine-made researchers buzzing in the manure heap just as much as he does the commercial docks? Do you get him? Do you? Yes, I think I do. Anyway, I get your enthusiasm for him, but please don't bully me so. Was I bullying? I didn't mean to. Only, when I get to thinking about the way most of these damned profs don't even know what he's up to— Martin was off again, and if Leora did not altogether understand the relation of the synthesis of antibodies to the work of Arrhenius, yet she listened with comfortable pleasure in his zeal, with none of Madeline Fox's gently corrective admonitions. She had to warn him that she must be at the hospital by ten. "'I've talked too much. Lord, I hope I haven't bored you,' he blurted. "'I loved it.' and I was so technical and so noisy. Oh, I am a chump. I like having you trust me. I'm not earnest, and I haven't any brains whatever, but I do love it when my men folks think I'm intelligent enough to hear what they really think, and good night. They dined together twice in two weeks, and only twice in that time, though she telephoned to him, did Martin see his honest, affianced, Madeline. He came to know all of Leora's background, her bedridden grand-aunt in Zenith, who was her excuse for coming so far to take hospital training, the hamlet of Wheatsylvania, North Dakota, 
one street of shanties with the red grain elevators at the end. Her father, Andrew Jackson Tozer, sometimes known as Jackass Tozer, owner of the bank, of the creamery, and an elevator, therefore the chief person in town. Pious at Wednesday evening prayer meeting, fussing over every penny he gave to Leora or her mother. Bert Tozer, her brother, squirrel teeth, a gold eyeglass chain over his ear, cashier, and all the rest of the staff in the one-room bank owned by his father. The chicken salad and coffee suppers at the United Brethren Church. German Lutheran farmers singing ancient Teutonic hymns. The Hollanders, the Bohemians, and Poles. And round about the village, the living wheat, arched above by tremendous clouds. He saw Leora, always an odd child, doing obediently enough the flat household tasks, but keeping snug the belief that some day she would find a youngster with whom, in whatever danger or poverty, she would behold all the colored world. It was at the end of her hesitating effort to make him see her childhood that he cried, "'Darling, you don't have to tell me about you. I've always known you. I'm not going to let you go, no matter what.' You're going to marry me. They said it with clasping hands, confessing eyes, in that blatant restaurant. Her first words were, I want to call you Sandy. Why do I? I don't know why. You're as unsandy as can be, but somehow Sandy means you to me, and, oh, my dear, I do like you. Martin went home engaged to two girls at once. Part 4. He had promised to see Madeline the next morning. By any canon of respectable behavior, he should have felt like a low dog. He assured himself that he must feel like a low dog. But he could not bring it off. He thought of Madeline's pathetic enthusiasms, her Provençal plaisance, and the limp leather volumes of poetry which she patted with fond fingertips of the tie she had bought for him, and her pride in his hair when he brushed it like the patent-leather heroes in magazine illustrations. He mourned that he had sinned against loyalty, but his agitation broke against the solidity of his union with Leora. Her companionship released his soul. Even when, as advocate for Madeline, he pleaded that Leora was a trivial young woman who probably chewed gum in private and certainly was careless about her nails in public. Her commonness was dear to the commonness that was in himself. Valid as ambition or reverence, an earthy base to her gaiety as it was to his nervous scientific curiosity. He was absent-minded in the laboratory that fatal next day. Gottlieb had twice to ask him whether he had prepared the new batch of medium, and Gottlieb was an autocrat, sterner with his favorites than with the ruck of students. He snarled, Aerosmith, you are a moon calf. My God, am I to spend my life with Doomkopf? I cannot always be alone, Martin. Are you going to fail me? Two, three days now, you have not been keen about work. Martin went off mumbling, I love that man. 
In his tangled mood, he catalogued Madeline's pretenses, her nagging, her selfishness, her fundamental ignorance. He worked himself up to a state of virtue in which it was agreeably clear to him that he must throw Madeline over, entirely as a rebuke. He went to her in the evening, prepared to blaze out at her first complaining, to forgive her finally, but to break their engagement and make life resolutely simple again. She did not complain. She ran to him. "'Dear, you're so tired. Your eyes look tired. Have you been working frightfully hard? I've been so sorry you couldn't come round this week. Dear, you mustn't kill yourself.' Think of all the years you have ahead to do splendid things in. No, don't talk. I want you to rest. Mother's gone to the movies. Sit here. See, I'll make you so comfy with these pillows. Just lean back. Go to sleep if you want to, and I'll read you the crock of gold. You'll love it. He was determined that he would not love it. And, as he probably had no sense of humor whatever, it is doubtful whether he appreciated it but its differentness aroused him. Though Madeline's voice was shrill and cornfieldish after Leora's lazy softness, she read so eagerly that he was sick ashamed of his intention to hurt her. He saw that it was she, with her pretenses, who was the child, and the detached and fearless Leora who was mature, mistress of a real world. The reproofs with which he had planned to crush her vanished. Suddenly she was beside him, begging, "'I've been so lonely for you, all week.' So he was a traitor to both women. It was Leora who had intolerably roused him. It was really Leora whom he was caressing now. But it was Madeline who took his hunger to herself, and when she whimpered, "'I'm so glad you're glad to be here.' He could say nothing. He wanted to talk about Leora, to shout about Leora, to exult in her, his woman. He dragged out a few sound but unimpassioned flatteries. He observed that Madeline was a handsome young woman and a sound English scholar, and while she gaped with disappointment at his lukewarmness, he got himself away at ten. He had finally succeeded very well indeed in feeling like a low dog. He hastened to Cliff Clausen. He had told Cliff nothing about Leora. He resented Cliff's probable scoffing. He thought well of himself for the calmness with which he came into their room. Cliff was sitting on the small of his back, shoeless feet upon the study table, reading a Sherlock Holmes story which rested on the powerful volume of Osler's Medicine, which he considered himself to be reading. "'Cliff, want a drink? Tired. Let's sneak down to Barney's and see if we can rustle one.' "'Thou speakest as one having tongues, and who putteth the speed behind the old rhombencephalon comprising the cerebellum and the medulla oblongata.' "'Oh, cut out the cuteness. I'm in a bad temper.' "'Ah, the laddie has been having a scrap with his chaste little Madeline. "'Was she horrid to ickly mardikins? "'All right, I'll quit. Come on. Yoikes for the drink.' "'He told three new stories about Professor Robert Shaw, "'all of them scurrilous and most of them untrue, on their way, 
and he almost coaxed Martin into cheerfulness. Barney's was a pool room, a tobacco shop, and, since Mohalis was dry by local option, an admirable blind pig. Cliff and the hairy-handed Barney greeted each other in a high and worthy manner. The benisons of eventide to you, Barney. May your circulation proceed unchecked, and particularly the dorsal carpal branch of the ulnar artery, in which connection, comrade, Professor Dr. Colonel Egbert Aerosmith and I would fain trifle with another bottle of that renowned strawberry pop. Gosh, Cliff, you certainly got a swell line of jaw music. If I ever need an arm amputated when you get to be a doc, I'll come around and let you talk it off. Strawberry pop, gents? The front room of Barney's was an impressionistic painting, in which a pool table, piles of cigarettes, chocolate bars, playing cards, and pink sporting papers were jumbled in chaos. The back room was simpler. Cases of sweet and thinly flavored soda, a large ice box, and two small tables with broken chairs. Barney poured, from a bottle plainly marked ginger ale, two glasses of powerful and appalling raw whiskey, and Cliff and Martin took them to the table in the corner. The effect was swift. Martin's confused sorrows turned to optimism. He told Cliff that he was going to write a book exposing idealism. But what he meant was that he was going to do something clever about his dual engagement. He had it. He would invite Leora and Madeline to lunch together, tell them the truth, and see which of them loved him. He whooped and had another whiskey. He told Cliff that he was a fine fellow, and Barney that he was a public benefactor. And unsteadily he retired to the telephone, which was shut off from public hearing in a closet. At the Zenith General Hospital he got the night superintendent, and the night superintendent was a man frosty and suspicious. This is no time to be calling up a probationer. Half past eleven. Who are you, anyway? Martin checked the, I'll damn soon tell you who I am, which was his natural reaction, and explained that he was speaking for Leora's invalid grand-aunt, that the poor old lady was very low, and if the night superintendent cared to take upon himself the murder of a blameless gentlewoman— when Leora came to the telephone, he said quickly, and soberly now, feeling as though he had come from the menace of thronging strangers into the security of her presence. Leora, Sandy, meet me Grand Lobby tomorrow, 12.30. Must. Important. Fix it somehow. Your aunt's sick. All right, dear. Good night, was all she said. It took him long minutes to get an answer from Madeline's flat. Then Mrs. Fox's voice sounded, sleepily, quaveringly. Yes, yes, it's Martin. Who is it? Who is it? What is it? Are you calling the Fox apartment? Yes, yes, Mrs. Fox. It's Martin Aerosmith speaking. Oh, oh, my dear. The phone woke me out of a sound sleep, and I couldn't make out what you were saying. I was so frightened. I thought maybe it was a telegram or something. I thought perhaps something had happened to Maddie's brother. What is it, dear? Oh, I do hope nothing's happened. Her confidence in him, the affection of this uprooted old woman, bewildered in a strange land, 
overcame him. He lost all his whiskey-colored feeling that he was a nimble fellow, and in a melancholy way, with all the weight of life again upon him, he sighed that no, nothing had happened, but he'd forgotten to tell Madeline something. So sharp, so sorry, call so late. Could he speak mad just minute? Then Madeline was bubbling. Why, Marty, dear, what is it? I do hope nothing has happened. Why, dear, you just left here. Listen, to dear, forgot to tell you. There's a, there's a great friend of mine in Zenith that I want you to meet. Who is he? You'll see tomorrow. Listen, I want you come in and meet, come meet him at lunch. Going, with ponderous jocularity, going to blow you all to a swell feed at the Grand. Oh, how nice! So I want you to meet me at the 1140 Interurban at College Square. Can you? Vaguely. Oh, I'd love to, but I have an 11 o'clock and I don't like to cut it. And I promised May Harmon to go shopping with her. She's looking for some kind of shoes that you can wear with her pink crepe de chine, but that you can walk in. And we sort of thought maybe we might lunch at Ye College Caravanserai. And I'd half planned to go to the movies with her or somebody. Mother says that new Alaska film is simply dandy. She saw it tonight. And I thought I might go see it before they take it off. Though heaven knows I ought to come right home and study and not go anywhere at all. Now listen. It's important. Don't you trust me? Will you come or not? Why, of course I trust you, dear. All right. I'll try to be there. The 1140? Yes. At College Square or at Bluthman's Bookshop? At College Square. Her gentle, I trust you, and her wambling, I'll try to, were warring in his ears as he plunged out of the suffocating cell and returned to Cliff. What's the grief? Cliff wondered. Wife passed away, or did the giants win in the ninth? Barney, our wandering boy tonight looks like a necropsy. Slip him another strawberry pop, quick. Say, doctor, I think you better call a physician. Oh, shut up, was all Martin had to say, and that without conviction. Before telephoning, he had been full of little brightnesses. He had praised Cliff's pool playing, and called Barney old Shemex Lectularius. But now, while the affectionate Cliff worked on him, he sat brooding, save when he grumbled, with a return of self-satisfaction. If you knew all the troubles I have, all the doggone mess a fellow can get into, you'd feel down in the mouth. Cliff was alarmed. Look here, old socks. If you've gotten in debt, I'll raise the cash somehow. If it's... Been going a little too far with Madeline? You make me sick. You got a dirty mind. I'm not worthy to touch Madeline's hand. I regard her with nothing but respect. The hell you do. But never mind, if you say so. Gosh, wish there was something I could do for you. Oh, have another shot. Barney, come a-runnin'. By several drinks, Martin was warmed into a hazy carelessness. 
and Cliff solicitously dragged him home after he had desired to fight three large academic sophomores. But in the morning, he awoke with a crackling skull and a realization that he was going to face Leora and Madeline at lunch. Part 5 His half-hour journey with Madeline into Zenith seemed a visible and oppressing thing, like a tornado cloud. He had not merely to get through each minute as it came. The whole grim thirty minutes were present at the same time. While he was practicing the tactful observation he was going to present two minutes from now, he could still hear the clumsy thing he had said two minutes before. He fought to keep her attention from the great friend of his whom they were to meet. With fatuous beaming, he described a night at Barney's. Without any success whatever, he tried to be funny. And when Madeline lectured him on the evils of liquor and the evils of association with immoral persons, he was for once relieved. But he could not sidetrack her. Who is this man we're going to see? What are you so mysterious about? Oh, Martin, is it a joke? Aren't we going to meet anybody? Did you just want to run away from Mama for a while, and we have a bat at the Grand together? Oh, what fun! I've always wanted to lunch at the Grand. Of course, I do think it's too sort of rococo, but still, it is impressive, and—did I guess it, darling? No, there's someone. Oh, we're going to meet somebody, all right. Then why don't you tell me who he is? Honestly, Mart, you make me impatient. Well, I'll tell you, it isn't a him, it's a her. Oh. It's, you know my work takes me to the hospitals, and some of the nurses at Zenith General have been awfully helpful. He was panting, his eyes ached. Since the torture of the coming lunch was inevitable, he wondered why he should go on trying to resist his punishment. Especially, there's one nurse there who's a wonder. She's learned so much about the care of the sick, and she puts me onto a lot of good stunts, and she seems like a nice girl. Miss Tozer, her name is. I think her first name is Lee, or something like that. And she's so... Her father is one of the big men in North Dakota. Awfully rich. Big banker. I guess she just took up nursing to do her share in the world's work. He had achieved Madeline's own tone of poetic uplift. I thought you two might like to know each other. You remember you were saying how few girls there are in Mohalis that really appreciate... appreciate ideals. Yes. Madeline gazed at something far away, and, whatever it was, she did not like it. I shall be very pleased to meet her, of course. Any friend of yours. Oh, Mart, I do hope you don't flirt. I hope you don't get too friendly with all these nurses. I don't know anything about it, of course, but I keep hearing how some of these nurses are regular man-hunters. Well, let me tell you right now, Leora isn't. No, I'm sure, but— Oh, Martykins, you won't be silly and let these nurses just amuse themselves with you. I mean— for your own sake. They have such an advantage. Poor Madeline. She wouldn't be allowed to go hanging around men's rooms learning. Things. 
and you think you're so psychological, Mart, but honestly, any smart woman can twist you around her finger. Well, I guess I can take care of myself. Oh, I mean, I don't mean, but I do hope this Tozer person, I'm sure I shall like her, if you do, but I am your own true love, aren't I? Always? She, the proper, ignored the passengers as she clasped his hand. She sounded so frightened that his anger at her reflections on Leora turned into misery. Incidentally, her thumb was gouging painfully into the back of his hand. He tried to look tender as he protested, Sure, sure, gosh, honest, mad, look out. The old duffer across the aisle is staring at us. For whatever infidelities he might ever commit, he was adequately punished before they had reached the Grand Hotel. The Grand was, in 1907, the best hotel in Zenith. It was compared by traveling salesmen to the Parker House, the Palmer House, the West Hotel. It has been humbled since by the supercilious modesty of the vast Hotel Thornley. Dirty now is its tessellated floor and all the wild gilt tarnished, and in its ponderous leather chairs are torn steams and stogie ashes and horse-dealers. But in its day it was the proudest inn between Chicago and Pittsburgh, an oriental palace, the entrance a score of brick Moorish arches, the lobby towering from a black-and-white marble floor, up past gilt iron balconies to the green, pink, pearl, and amber skylight seven stories above. They found Leora in the lobby, tiny, on an enormous couch built round a pillar. She stared at Madeline, quiet, waiting. Martin perceived that Leora was unusually sloppy, his own word. It did not matter to him how clumsily her honey-colored hair was tucked under her black hat, a characterless little mushroom of a hat, but he did see and resent the contrast between her shirt-waist, with the third button missing, her checked shirt, her unfortunate bright brown bolero jacket, and Madeline's sleekness of blue serge. The resentment was not toward Leora. Scanning them together, not haughtily, as the choosing and lofty male, but anxiously, he was more irritated than ever by Madeline. That she should be better dressed was an affront. His affection flew to guard Leora, to wrap and protect her. And all the while he was bumbling, "'Thought you two girls ought to know each other. Miss Fox, want to make you acquainted with Miss Tozer. Little celebration.' Lucky dog to have two queens of Sheba. And to himself, oh, hell. While they murmured nothing in particular to each other, he herded them into the famous dining room of the Grand. It was full of gilt chandeliers, red plush chairs, heavy silverware, and aged negro retainers with gold and green waistcoats. Round the walls ran select views of Pompeii, Venice, Lake Como, and Versailles. "'Swell room,' chirped Leora. Madeline had looked as though she intended to say the same thing in longer words, 
but she considered the frescoes all over again and explained, "'Well, it's very large.' He was ordering, with agony. He had appropriated four dollars for the orgy, strictly including the tip, and his standard of good food was that he must spend every cent of the four dollars. While he wondered what Puree Saint-Germain could be, and the waiter hideously stood watching behind his shoulder, Madeline fell too. She chanted with horrifying politeness, "'Mr. Arrowsmith tells me you are a nurse, Miss Tozer.' "'Yes, sort of. Do you find it interesting?' "'Well, yes. Yes, I think it's interesting.' I suppose it must be wonderful to relieve suffering. Of course, my work. I'm taking my Doctor of Philosophy degree in English. She made it sound as though she were taking her earldom. It's rather dry and detached. I have to master the growth of the language and so on and so forth. With your practical training, I suppose you'd find that rather stupid. Yes, it must be—no, it must be very interesting— "'Do you come from Zenith, Miss Tozer?' "'No, I come from just a little town. "'Well, hardly a town. "'North Dakota.' "'Oh, North Dakota.' "'Yes, way west.' "'Oh, yes. "'Are you staying east for some time?' "'It was precisely what a much-resented New York cousin "'had once said to Madeline. "'Well, I don't—' "'Yes, I guess I may be here quite some time. "'Do you, uh, do you find you like it here?' "'Oh, yes, it's pretty nice. "'These big cities, so much to see.' "'Big? "'Well, I suppose it depends on the point of view, doesn't it? "'I always think of New York as big, but, of course, "'do you find the contrast to North Dakota interesting?' "'Well, of course it's different.' Tell me what North Dakota's like. I've always wondered about these western states. It was Madeline's second plagiarism of her cousin. What is the general impression it makes on you? I don't think I know just how you mean. I mean, what is the general effect? The impression? Well, it's got lots of wheat and lots of Swedes. But I mean... I suppose you're all terribly virile and energetic compared with us Easterners. I don't—well, yes, maybe. Have you met lots of people in Zenith? Not so awfully many. Oh, have you met Dr. Birchall, that operates in your hospital? He's such a nice man, and not just a good surgeon, but frightfully talented. He sings wonderfully— and he comes from the most frightfully nice family. No, I don't think I've met him yet, Leora bleated. Oh, you must, and he plays the slickest, the most gorgeous game of tennis. He always goes to all these millionaire parties on Royal Ridge, frightfully smart. Martin now first interrupted. Smart? Him? He hasn't got any brains whatever. My dear child, I didn't mean smart in that sense. He sat alone and helpless, while she again turned on Leora and ever more brightly inquired whether Leora knew this son of a corporation lawyer and that famous debutante, this hat shop and that club. 
she spoke familiarly of what were known as the leaders of Zenith society, the personages who appeared daily in the society columns of the Advocate Times, the Cowkses and the Van Andrums and Dodsworths. Martin was astonished by the familiarity. He remembered that she had once gone to a charity ball in Zenith, but he had not known that she was so intimate with the peerage. Certainly, Leora had appallingly never heard of these great ones, nor even attended the concerts, the lectures, the recitals at which Madeline apparently spent all her glittering evenings. Madeline shrugged a little. Then, well, of course with the fascinating doctors and everybody that you meet in the hospital, I suppose you'd find lectures frightfully tame. Well, she dismissed Leora and looked patronizingly at Martin. Are you planning some more work on the what-is-it-with-rabbits? He was grim. He could do it now, if he got it over quickly. Madeline brought you two together because— Don't know whether you caught into each other or not, but I wish you could, because I've— I'm not making any excuses for myself. I couldn't help it. I'm engaged to both of you, and I want to know— Madeline had sprung up. She had never looked quite so proud and fine. She stared at them and walked away, wordless. She came back, she touched Leora's shoulder, and quietly kissed her. Dear, I'm sorry for you. You've got a job, you poor baby. She strode away, her shoulders straight. Hunched, frightened, Martin could not look at Leora. He felt her hand on his. He looked up. She was smiling, easy, a little mocking. Sandy, I warn you that I'm never going to give you up. I suppose you're as bad as she says. I suppose I'm foolish. I'm a hussy. But you're mine. I warn you, it isn't a bit of use your getting engaged to somebody else again. I'd tear her eyes out. Now, don't think so well of yourself. I guess you're pretty selfish. But I don't care. You're mine. He said brokenly many things beautiful in their commonness. She pondered. I do feel we're nearer together than you and her. Perhaps you like me better because you can bully me, because I tag after you and she never would. And I know your work is more important to you than I am, maybe more important than you are. But I am stupid and ordinary, and she isn't. I simply admire you frightfully. Heaven knows why, but I do. While she has sense enough to make you admire her and tag after her, no, I swear it isn't because I can bully you, Leora. I swear it isn't. I don't think it is. Dearest, don't, don't think she's brighter than you are. She's glib, but... Oh, let's stop talking. I've found you. My life's begun.